Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. I've got a big blowout story just out on my trip to speak to migrant workers in Qatar. We're just starting year two, and I have big plans to cover the men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. Uh, what's the reaction been to, to your piece on Qatar? Because I know you've been working on that one for a long time. Uh, you finally brought it out to the world. Uh, what, what was the reaction when it finally landed? I mean, there was a, a reaction I was hoping for, I guess, which is concern about what's happening in Qatar. And I, I do encourage everyone to read it. Um, I went to Qatar and they, their government in Qatar announced these sweeping changes in their laws about migrant workers saying they would make life better for migrant workers. This was back in 2019. And I went to do one thing and speak to migrant workers in Qatar. For me, it was hotel workers at 14 FIFA-affiliated hotels in Doha, and simply ask them, are these laws being followed on the ground? And uh, they got into some pretty detailed discussions with me and trusted me, and I appreciate that because I gave them anonymity. This is a a tough climate there, right? You've got migrant workers who are being arrested, put in jail, deported for speaking to journalists. You've got journalists who have been detained in Qatar for doing journalism. And so this was a really important one for me, probably the most important story I've done for my site. And I'm going to go to Qatar, at least I plan to, as long as they let me in for November and December at the World Cup. And I'm going to only have time to cover soccer then. So it was important that I go there before that to actually address uh, the migrant worker topic. And I learned a lot. Um, I hope people read it. I don't know. I mean, it's, um, it's the kind of story that I think is important to do if you really care about this stuff. And I'll be honest, like, I was scared to death at some points during my stay there because um, I didn't want to get arrested. Um, didn't want to get anyone else like a worker in a bad position where they were punished for talking to me. So I really was aware of being careful about all of that. Plus I had a phone app that was tracking my every move that literally is a state mandated thing that they say is for COVID, but is also tracking your every move. And surveillance. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I feel good that the story got out and and we'll see where it goes from here but i don't know what were your thoughts yeah i i just sort of wonder and i i saw you also did a, a follow-up mailbag on the friday on i hope that the networks that are u.s rights holders for the world cup do journalism about this stuff and i think it's it's just so bizarre that we're now what less than we're a little bit more than 2 months away we release on the 19th kickoff is november the 20th we're a day more than 2 months out from the start of the world cup and the amount of accommodations that have happened just so that this world cup can happen it's been the most haphazard the most bizarrely put together event Really, in major sporting, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess there there might be Olympics that 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 can fight for that, and there's probably track events and things like that that I'm not aware of. But it, this has just been such a bizarre eight years. It's been eight years since they initially awarded this thing, and they're only just getting around to even coming close to solving some of these issues. And it's just so strange that this country is going to host the World Cup that they're trying to put a face on it, but. Even the notion of you fearing doing journalism there, that's that's not what this was supposed to be eight years on. And here we are. We're on the brink of the tournament. They'll put on a good face because every country that's had it, you know, even, even Russia for a while for both the Olympics and the World Cup, put on a face while they were hosting the major event. But then afterwards, they go right back to doing what they were doing. And I just can't believe that this is actually going to happen. And it'll be bizarre because it'll be the World Cup. We'll be excited about it. It'll probably be great fun. The soccer will be great fun. But it's just so bizarre that this is the backdrop and that nothing was really done to fix it. Yeah, no, it was a crazy decision back in 2010 for 
FIFA to God, put 12 the World years. Cup. I was wrong by four years. Good <laughs> Lord, man. I was there December 2nd, 2010, when that decision was made to put the 2018 World Cup in Russia, the 22 World Cup in Qatar. And I should be very clear, like, yes, I was scared to death at points in Qatar, but like compared to the actual workers there, not, I, I get it. I mean, like they're living there. They're trying to deal with some awful situations in some cases. I published some of the stuff that's been sent to me, including videos of living conditions for workers I met. And I just need to emphasize, I randomly introduced myself to workers there and some of them happened to continue messaging with me about their experience there. So there was nothing prearranged on any of this stuff. I just happened to introduce myself to random ones and they shared their stories. I hope people read it um, and we'll see where it goes from here. And look, I, I, I wanted to write a balanced story too. And I do think some progress has taken place in Qatar. I mean, the laws that have been enacted are something real and something that not all of the Gulf states have even now. And so that should be acknowledged, but there are still a lot of those laws not being followed on the ground and any Joe like me can go there and talk to people and find out that's the case. So um, you put it all in, in perspective and context and, and hope it reaches people, uh, whether it's ordinary folks or people who can really make a difference. And we go from there. And I mean, let's seg into this weekend because I want to open with something that is very prevalent in the world right now, but this was a huge weekend for it in the soccer world, both domestically and internationally. Racism out there everywhere. Um, few different instances this weekend, high profile instances in soccer. In Spain, Vinicius Jr., the terrific Brazilian forward who's black for Real Madrid, earlier in the week on El Chiringuito, a show that I used to find funny and wrote about, but am finding less so all the time. Uh, an agent came on and talked about uh, Vinicius Jr.'s dancing, said he was acting like a monkey. Uh, obviously, racist images there. Uh, and then there was a real groundswell of support, which I liked for Vinicius Jr., not just from his Brazilian teammates, but around the world basically saying, I think the hashtag was Baila uh, Vini, like, so dance. Uh, and he put out a statement that I thought was well constructed about how uh, this affected him and how dancing is part of who he is. And then on Sunday, his Real Madrid team plays Atletico Madrid, their crosstown rival, racist chants from the Atletico Madrid fans before the game outside the stadium about Vinicius Jr., uh, racist actions inside the stadium. Real Madrid ends up winning the game. Vinicius Jr. dances with his teammates, which I liked. Um, and there's more than just that, Chris. Domestically this weekend, we had an instance in the game you broadcast, DC United enter Miami, won by Miami, where there's now going to be an investigation because multiple people from Inter Miami saying that Taxi Fountas, the Greek forward for DC United, dropped the N-word on Miami players during the game. Um, lots of discussion about this afterward, which you can go into detail with me on a, in a second here. And then even in the, the NWSL game in San Diego, where they set an NWSL crowd size record on Saturday night, a Mexican-American fan, uh, LA fan, in the stadium said he was racially abused by San Diego fans there. So that's another instance. And damn it, this pisses me off, man. Like it's, it's just so constant. And, and you have weekends like this where, you know, there's more instant instances that are high profile maybe, but it's just such a, such a constant part of, of soccer domestically and, and internationally. Well, it's also reflective of the society, the society writ large, right? It's not just about in, in this sport, or in sports, uh, it's always a reflection of what's going on across the world. I, I just can't believe that being publicly racist is still something that we have to deal with, right? And you know that obviously there are many millions of people the world over that are racist in private, 
and we just never find out about it. And that's just, it's an ill deep in our society. But these public instances just remind that, first off, as it relates to the Vinicius Jr. thing and the Atletico fans, there are just moments where sports fans never miss the chance to be the absolute worst. That just because Vinicius Jr. is a player on the opposition team in the local derby and the Atletico fans basically want to use it in some ways to get an advantage over their crosstown rival by saying some racist things to them. It's just so strange that everything has to be armament in the battle to try and win the crosstown rivalry in football. And I don't, and I don't mean to paint with a broad brush. That thought's been in my head. There was also scenes in the NFL today of the Cleveland Browns fans trying to defend Deshaun Watson, their quarterback right. that was found of, of, you know, not guilty, but was proven in an investigation to have committed many sexual assaults against massage therapists, and you suspended eleven games for it. But yeah, it's just. Not everything has to be about you versus your opponent in sports. And there are some there th- that was another moment to prove it. In general, that agent saying that thing was awful. But again, I, you mentioned the the taxi fountas thing. That was a very bizarre incident because we didn't have any eyes and ears on the ground on the inter Miami broadcast. We broadcast those games remotely. And so there was a five minute delay in the game, and the referee, was trying to deal with it sort of piece by piece. According to Pro, uh, the organization that run referees in Major League Soccer, they have a protocol for when this sort of thing happens. And apparently the referee, Ismail Elfath, handled it sort of you know by the book. And he was trying to figure out what happened by discussing it with the player. Damian Lowe, the Jamaican center back for Inter-Miami, was the first player to report uh, racist abuse. Apparently the other central defender for Inter-Miami, Aimee Mabika, uh, Zambian born who moved to the U.S. and has you know been with Inter Miami now for two seasons. Um, also heard the N word, which is uh, what Phil Neville said after the game. The worst possible word you can use was his exact quote, and they both heard it. And so the referee comes over to the technical areas, and in my mind now. This is obviously not something that I can say on the air because I don't know. And I don't want to besmirch Taxi Fontas in the event that, you know, he didn't say it. But once you once the delay three, four, five minutes, you're going, all right, there had to have been something there that has caused this delay, that has, that has caused the referee to come over to talk to, to both coaches. Phil Neville, according to him, brought his entire team over and was like, how do we want to proceed? Uh, DeAndre Yedlin gave voice to, if something doesn't happen with this player, Taxi Fontas of DC, we're not going to play. I guess Phil Neville and Wayne Rooney came to some sort of agreement because while the whistle sounded for the play to continue, very quickly Wayne Rooney took Taxi Fontas off the field as a substitute and instead of getting a red card he was pulled off and now the investigation will happen and we'll see what happens but again it it, it ruined in, in some respects it was a very joyous moment for Inter Miami they won a game that took them above the playoff line and you know, DeAndre Edlin has to answer those questions instead of the ones about his brilliant assist for the third goal for Inter Miami that got them the win and it just it just sucks that this you know we're talking about this at the lead of the show that this is still something that happens in public in this way and what do you say other than people stop being racist please Get, stop like, it, being it's, racist. It, it's time for us to evolve beyond this. Stop being racist. Stop doing things that make people feel like it's okay to be racist. Because that's a big part of what's happened in our culture in recent years. And that's right-wing bullshit that allows people to feel like it's okay to say racist things. That happens in the United States. That happens in Spain. That happens in a... a two, too many countries these days. And let's be clear about where that's coming from because it's it's just it's just so I don't know, man. I mean, it's hard for me to like actually like transition because at some point here we're going to have to transition to talking about soccer this weekend, right? Um, and I, I I can't believe we're here. And and, and what else do you say? You know? Um, yeah. You know, everyone who's listening. Do what you can in your community to to fight this stuff because it, it does take every single person, especially these days. And um, yeah, um, so terrible transition moment here. But I'm I'm gonna 
actually ask you about, we're going to go with, with us here first, uh, for a change this week. I mean, so was inter Miami able to take something aside from this instant or incident and, and say like, look, this is a huge added time goal from Gonzalo Higuain to give us a win against DC and put us actually above the playoff line. Massive. Yeah. I, I do think that, you know, it was interesting. There was a, a picture shared from the postgame locker room and a lot of the players were still capable of putting on a very happy and excited face. Uh, they, they love taking those kind of postgame locker room images. Although there was one player, Indiana Vasilev, the former U.S. youth national team who's in the background and just looks shell-shocked. I think he was mm. incredibly emotionally distraught from what happened to his two teammates and his two friends uh, in the Inter-Miami side. But yeah, I think at the end... You do have to, you know, get, tip your hat to Inter Miami, this team that struggled out of the gate one point from their first five games, and they've been fighting so hard, and they didn't actually get a ton of help elsewhere. Orlando and Cincinnati both won this weekend to go, go that little bit clear, but they got that little bit of help from Portland Timbers, who got a 96-minute equalizer against Columbus, who draw yet again, who drop points from winning positions yet again, and so Miami go above them in the table with three games left to play. You mentioned Higuain. He's now got 10 goals in his last 13 games for Inter-Miami. This is a player that, I mean, you have heard derisive things about him all over the league. Fan, like, I listen to a ton of fan podcasts before games because, uh, you know, like, it's just my, one of my forms of prep. And there's anytime Higuain's name, oh, he's got a cigarette in his mouth and he doesn't care at all, all year long. Even, like, as recently as a few weeks ago, I'm still hearing this trope about Higuain. And since Alejandro Pozuelo has come into the team, he's a player reborn. And this is a DP player that was criticized for not taking the league seriously enough. And he hasn't done enough since being in Miami and being in MLS and a sign of, you know, MLS being a retirement league and a league where, you know, veteran players don't come here and take it seriously. And man, he has completely turned that on its head. And I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to see Gonzalo Higuain in the playoffs in the form that he is in. He's been sensational. And yeah, Miami can still take some joy from it and enjoy a win. And with three games left, they come out of the international break at Toronto, home Orlando, home Montreal, with the chance to make the playoffs. I guess we can say for real this time, because in year one they made it, but they were 10th in the East in an expanded playoff field due to COVID. So it was uh, it was really jubilant uh, to watch Inter Miami win a game away from home and take themselves into the playoff positions. Yeah, and you look at other teams, uh, Seattle Sounders, which very recently won the CONCACAF Champions League, losing to Vancouver, Seattle's in real trouble at yep. this point. And uh, that's something we did not predict earlier this season. Um, still a couple of games. We'll see if they can find a way to make it. The other aspect of all of this, obviously, is any team that's on the border of making the, the playoffs, none of these are great teams, Chris. <laughs> right. I mean, I do think there's some good stories in there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, Phil Neville has even come out and said, look, I, I think we still have a chance because none of these teams are going to win four in a row. So even if we drop a result, like there's going to be a corresponding dropped result that's going to uh, give us a chance. For me, the team that I'm kind of, I mean, obviously I, I you know cover Miami a lot, so I'll be interested in them. I think Cincinnati's a great story. Yeah. Uh, the fact that they're, they've been consistent enough to get there after winning the wooden spoon in all of their seasons in MLS. But for me, the team that I'm most watching in this run-in is absolutely the LA galaxy uh because it just feels like they're so much better than their points return suggest they are and yet their points return is exactly right based off of the number of ways that they've managed to screw up games but i have to be honest there might not be a player in major league soccer that is more box office for me right now than ricky pooch who, who, who arrived for the Galaxy and the way that he dictates the game with his passing, yeah. with his central midfield play, that dude is awesome to watch. I just wanted to like state for the record on this podcast that anytime the Galaxy are on, I will be watching it. I'm just going to watch Pooch run around and like be a Barcelona player who is probably going to be going back to Spain very soon because he is really good. And while being not good enough for Barcelona is not exactly an insult, I think he was probably overrated how much he fell off as a result of the fact that he couldn't crack it in this youth movement. He's a brilliant footballer, and he's amazing to watch. I still find it so bizarre that he's even in this league. It's so <laughs> strange. There wasn't one other La Liga club that wanted him? Not one? It was it just like <laughs> blows so my mind. 
The other question I've got for you is on second reference, do we call him Pooj or Ricky Pooj? Because like, is it all one word? Is that his like, <laughs> is it like Roberto Carlos? Yeah, I, I, I will do the second reference Pooch. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if he feels like someone who is just, you say his whole name every time he's never, he's never just Ricky. He's never just pooch. He's always Ricky pooch. You almost say it like as if it's one word. Let's talk about the U S men's national team because they released their new roster for this week's upcoming games. The last two before the world cup against Japan and Saudi Arabia, Greg Berhalter probably making the most amount of news by omitting Jordan Peefock, who currently is the starting center forward for the first place team in the German Bundesliga, Union Berlin. He scored again on Sunday as Union Berlin won again. This is a league with Bayern Munich in it, and Union Berlin and Jordan Peefock are in first place. He's scoring goals, and... He can't get a call into a U.S. national team that has really struggled to find a good number nine. And, and Ricardo Pepe gets called in. Now, he did score a goal this weekend for Groningen, his first goal for Clubber Country since 11 months ago in October of 2021. What happened here? And are you as exercised about this as some fans are? I think I should be more exercised about it. I, I I don't think that I am appropriately exercised because I do think at this stage, you know, and, and look, you can criticize Greg Berhalter. You can say he's not for you. And you can say that maybe the U.S. should have a different coach. But I do think at this point, he's got to pick players that he thinks fit the system, fit what they've done for the last year, fit their plan for the World Cup, which, by the way, isn't to say that Jordan Pifuck won't eventually get into a place where he'll he's called into this into the World Cup squad because he offers something different than the other center forwards that were picked. That being said, I, I it, it's tough for me to really get too upset about it because if Burhalter doesn't think he'll fit and he doesn't think he'll play, then why pick him other than he's he's got he's in very good club form. He's playing at a much higher level than Josh Sargent is who's gotten a call back. Sar- Sargent is another player who has not performed well in a national team shirt, and you can say, hey, you know, like maybe he just doesn't get called back in. He's in the wilderness until the next cycle because he didn't play well enough for the U.S., just as PFOC didn't, in my view. I think Pepe gets the call in because he's performed well at times with the national team, and that does carry some credibility. I just think that Greg Berhalter is probably going to pick a group of forwards that fit what he wants to do. And if PFOC isn't one of them, then maybe you can say, well, you need to adjust your game plan, Greg, and you need to figure out a way to get, as you said, a center forward for a team that's top of the Bundesliga into your team. Maybe your system isn't doing enough to incorporate a player like that or incorporate any center forwards, really. That's really the biggest criticism you can levy at Greg Berhalter is that center forwards have not thrived in this system since he's taken over in the U.S. national team. But I do think at this point, if you're asking a manager to put a square peg into a round hole, then I, I don't think that's necessarily wise just because he's scoring goals at a high level for a good club in Germany. Here's my point, though, Chris. And I go back to 2014 and Chris Wondolowski missing against Belgium very late. And I still think if Jurgen Klinsmann had brought Landon Donovan to that World Cup, Landon Donovan didn't need to start, but he could have come on in a sort of desperate situation late in the game when you just need a goal and you'll take it any way you can get it. And I still believe if Landon Donovan had been on the field in that moment when the chance came to Chris Wondolowski, that Landon Donovan would have finished that. And that in and of itself is why Jurgen Klinsmann failed miserably and should have brought Landon Donovan to that World Cup. So I think there could come a time, much like that one, in this World Cup when the U.S. is just desperate for a goal, needs a goal, any way you can get it. And at that point, Greg Berhalter's system is not, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Get a goal. Get a goal any way you can. And if you have a guy who, Jordan Peefock doesn't even need to start for the U.S. at the World Cup. I doubt he will. I figure Jesus Ferreira will start. And yet, I can't believe you can't take Jordan Peefock for the simple reason that in late in the game, you might need a goal. And that's a guy I want to see on the field in that moment, at the very least. And I don't think the U.S. has 
that many center forwards that you can say that about. So that's what I would say. And I think that alone is reason enough to bring Jordan Pifak to the World Cup, even if he hasn't scored a ton of goals for the U.S., he hasn't had that many opportunities. One, two, he actually did score a goal in a pretty important situation in the CONCACAF Nations League semifinal. Yes, he missed a sitter at Mexico, which I think still dogs him to a large extent, but he hasn't had that many data points. What we do know, the club game gives us a lot of data points. They also can tell you what the level of the competition is. And when you're in first place in the German Bundesliga and you're scoring goals, I think that's one guy worth a spot among 26 on your team. Do you think he makes it, though? Because I, I wonder if maybe this camp is Pepe v. Sargent, have it out, maybe. and PFOC is coming no matter what. So I wanted to get a look at these two guys. Maybe. I, I, I don't totally buy that, though. I know that a lot of people want to think that's the case, because that's sort of the rational <laughs> yeah. point here. But it's kind of like people who are still holding out hope for John Brooks. It's not the same situation, obviously, but it's like John Brooks, folks, is not coming to Greg Berhalter's national team. We've known this for a really long time now, and it's just not going to happen. And so it's kind of wild. Like with, with each passing center back injury, it kind of <laughs> becomes more and more wild that he's not even in contention because. I mean, I look, I don't know if I don't know if Brooks Zimmerman is a complimentary center back partnership, but those are probably your two best that are available right now. And the fact that you keep running out like you, you hear more about Mark McKenzie or Eric Palmer Brown or Long or Carter Vickers or even Chris Richards, who's not playing a ton of Crystal Palace. You can rattle off six, seven center backs that appear to be getting a look in ahead of Brooks and, you know, Berhalter's tried to say this isn't a you know this isn't about anything personal this isn't about any any relationship between us but man it just seems bizarre that you wouldn't take Brooks with each again these are decisions where I think you have to in some ways like I think of like how Gareth Southgate takes a ton of crap for you know like during big games in the Euros last year picking Bukayo Saka ahead of Jaden Sancho and Jack Grealish and all these incredible flair players and instead of picking what a lot of the fans wanted, he decided that his his ethos, his system superseded that. And so you do have to give a national team manager some latitude to do that. But I, I still think that these are decisions that are, are a bit bizarre. So the news, and we're recording this on Sunday night, 9.40 p.m. Eastern, is uh, Eric Palmer Brown and Mark McKenzie, center backs, have been called into the U.S. men's national team because Cameron Carter-Vickers is hurt. Chris Richards is hurt. Real missed opportunity here for Richards, potentially. Uh, but all along, we were sort of thinking the starting center backs would be Walker Zimmerman and Aaron Long. And that's even more likely now. So, you know, so often we talk about not the starting 11. We talk about all these other things. The starting 11 expectation is even more the same now for the center back position. So... Um, whether you and I think that maybe Chris Richards would be a better fit there than Aaron Long, that's not going to happen this time. Um, and so obviously John Brooks is not involved. Uh, Mark McKenzie's been playing well at club level, but he's been it, it, most importantly part of at some point the Burhalter <laughs> system, which seems to like give you a lot of credit in these situations. Um, and so you look at this game coming this week. Uh, I'll be there, by the way, for grantwall.com. I fly out on Tuesday night. And, you know, like not that many surprises, I guess, about like we kind of know what the starting 11 is going to be unless someone else gets hurt. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you know that it'll be Stefan in goal. The back four will probably be Des Turner. Stefan's not in. Oh, right. What? Oh, I, I'm saying, yeah, for these friendlies. But do you think that, do you think that come November? I, I think it, it's still Stefan. I really, if Stefan's healthy, I expect Stefan will start. Right. Uh, right. I think, I think we can pick the team at this point, other than maybe the nine and maybe the third midfielder, or if there's room for Brendan Aronson. I guess Way, Wea's injury probably is one. But yeah, I mean, it's probably Stefan, Dest, Zimmerman, um, Aaron Long, Anthony Robinson, McKenney, Musa Adams. Uh, and then the front three is either Pulisic, Ferreira, and Weo, or Pulisic, Ferreira, and Brendan Aronson. That's probably it, right? 
Like, and, and, and yeah. there's not a lot that's that that'll change the minds. That might be a good thing, but I also, there's something that like, just gives me this feeling that after game one, there's going to be a massive outcry for somebody to be dropped. I, and I don't know if it's because the U S loses or they don't perform well enough against Wales. Um, but I just, I feel like there's going to be some massive outcry about one of those positions. I'd probably make goalkeeper the favorite at this point. I, I would say Gio Reyna is a big X factor mm-hmm. in terms of a guy we didn't see very often in qualifying because he was injured so much. He's playing, fingers crossed, right now for Dortmund. Uh, figures to get even more playing time now that Marco Royce uh, just picked up another massive injury right before a major tournament. So very sorry to hear that from Marco Royce. Um, but if Gio Reyna can be healthy, then... Even if Weah, like, like Weah was one of the best U.S. attackers during World Cup qualifying. And so what do you do with all those winger possibilities? And do you potentially use Gio Reyna in another spot on the field, potentially in the midfield or Aronson in the midfield? And that's always going to be a question. Part of the issue, though, is you see all the injuries that the U.S. has picked up just this weekend or in the last week. And you know that's going to be the case for the World Cup itself because the club calendar only stops one week before the World Cup does. That's not usually the case. And so if this were a summer World Cup, guys would have three to four weeks to get healthy if they had a a minor injury. That's not going to be the case now. And so that can get frustrating when you have all these injury issues. Yeah, I do think that some of the selection dilemmas will be solved by injuries. And and you you mentioned Reyna. For me, he's probably one... He's come on. I think he played a couple of long stints as a sub this week because of injuries that happened in the first half of Dortmund matches. But I, I also would have to imagine that Reyna probably heads to the World Cup as a super sub. I, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think that he'll start just because you want to preserve his fitness throughout the tournament. And I, I, I actually sort of find it interesting that the U.S. probably have too many players for central midfield positions. Think about Reyna. Think about Aronson. The notion that Aronson is perform- could have performed as well as he has for Leeds and might not start is kind of astounding. That being said, though, you'd have to imagine that given the, the there will be five subs, two of the subs in every game will be wingers, and you just say, hey, Tim Weah, run your ass off for 60 minutes, try and create something, and then Brendan Aronson will come in for you. Um, maybe Pulisic won't be one of the ones that gets taken out, but either way, you'd imagine that everyone in this group will be playing by virtue of the fact that there being five subs and everyone can make an impact from the bench. I guess you do sort of ask yourself, who are the players most likely to make an impact from the bench? And maybe Aronson, fresh legs, he harries opponents, he makes life difficult, uh, he can cause problems from the bench, but... That being said, it would just be so harsh on him for, you know, given how well he's played in the Premier League uh, to not be given a go. But there's a lot of good options, and that's a good thing. I think you've got to start Brendan Aronson, actually, at this point. We'll see Who'd how that drop? takes. Uh, Wea, I, I don't think right now he's just, he hasn't played. Um, yeah. And I know he's been good for the U.S., but I would take Brendan Aronson a heartbeat there. I also think Aronson's defensive energy has gone to a new level, and he improves at a faster clip basically than any other U.S. player at this point. So I think he could have a major impact at the World Cup. I hope he's a starter. I don't think Kristen Pulisic, by the way, is a guaranteed starter for the U.S. Really? Uh, and, and Berhalter has said as much in his decisions for the Mexico game in Cincinnati, for the game in Minneapolis, uh, both of which game, you know, games in which Pulisic came on as a sub and scored. Um, and so I don't think anyone is guaranteed a spot in the starting lineup for the U S and you don't, you don't, you don't think that Pulisic has been treated differently. I feel like he has, I feel like Pulisic is the one player who's sort of an untouchable in this team, just by virtue of his pedigree. He's been around longer and but like I just said, he, he, he hasn't been untouchable. He has been a sub. Even well, when th- those were, like, those were moments though, where he was dealing with injuries at club level. He's fully fit right now. I, I, I don't know about that, though. I mean, like, the, the Minneapolis game, I think, was more a decision of, like, he's just not in good form. Maybe. No, you know? I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, those are three-match windows. This will be, this will be tight. I, I would be stunned if Pulisic doesn't start each and every group stage game for, for the U.S. I don't, I'll come out and say it right now. I don't think Pulisic starts every game. Really? Okay. Yeah, in the group stage. Should we, should we, uh, should we put a tenor on it, and we'll, uh, maybe I'll vent yeah, during the World yeah. Cup? Why not? How much are 10 Qatari Reals or is that at $10? Anyway, uh, (laughs) let's talk about a few other things from the weekend here. And and lastly here, I guess, in the U.S., I do want to say that the the NWSL record crowd, I watched this game 
uh, on Saturday night. San Diego hosting in their new stadium, Snapdragon Stadium, wins 1-0 against Angel City, their rival. Both new teams in the league, 32,000, I think, crowd, which obviously is huge. Um, And... San Diego's in first place again. It's a musical chairs type thing because so many teams are close in the NWSL. Angel City, by the way, is now four points out of the playoffs. They do have a game in hand on Chicago, but they're in some trouble uh, here. And Angel City has deservedly got a lot of attention for filling their stadium so often this season. But from a soccer perspective, they've been not quite as good. Um, and, and so you look at what San Diego's done, Casey Stoney, their coach, uh, expansion team now in first place, and we'll see if they can carry that into the playoffs. They're gonna almost surely make the playoffs and see if they can win a title, but it's almost like, uh, San Diego's gotten been sort of the less attention stepchild of the expansion teams compared to angel city, but they could win this whole thing. Well, and now also they have sort of this massive fan support because obviously the the fan support has been a huge part of the Angel City narrative as well. Now they get 32,000 in in a brand new stadium and there's a massive amount of enthusiasm now. I mean, earlier in the season, they were selling out their their ground. It's just a smaller capacity ground. But I am kind of blown away at the success that San Diego have had in their expansion season because you're kind of saying, well, Angel City haven't done as much on the field. They're an expansion team. That, in theory, like being four points off the playoffs is kind of about right for an expansion team. So I don't think they should really get uh, too much criticism for it. You can't imagine they'll have any issues bringing players in. It's Los Angeles. That club is drawing a ton of attention. And San Diego, what what a great soccer town. And um, yeah, it's it's awesome to see them towards the top of the league and no a no-doubt NWSL title contender. We'll be talking more about the NWSL playoffs as we get closer there. Uh, let's go to Europe for a little bit here. Um, Arsenal. Let's talk Arsenal. 3-0 winners at Brentford. And just a really good Arsenal performance from the start here. And Thomas Frank, the Brentford coach after the game, went there and said, Arsenal is a true title contender. Do we agree with him? Well, we know that Thomas Frank is not exactly Jose Mourinho. It's not trying to lift the expectations uh, just j- just to needle them. I-, I do think he genuinely means that. And this is a difficult fixture. Away at Brentford has proven to be a difficult game this season. We saw Leeds United struggle. We obviously saw, we obviously saw Manchester United struggle with that earlier this season. So you have to give Arsenal a huge amount of credit. The goals were just incredibly solid. The ball from Xhaka into Gabriel J- uh, Jesus great header. Fabio Vieira's strike from long distance was great. And that for me is the sign that Arsenal are in a really good moment because they're getting contributions from their depth. And that's something that you could really question about this team. When Kieran Tierney got hurt in previous seasons, they had to move Granit Xhaka out to left back. And now they have a really good replacement at Alexander Zinchenko. That's a really good competition at that position. You have Gabriel and William Saliba holding down central defensive positions. Ben White, who they spent a ton of money on, has had to either play some right back or sit on the bench. And so they have tactical flexibility. They have some depth. And they have a group of young attackers that are really coming on. Jesus has proven to be a fantastic signing. Saka, Martinelli, even Emil Smith-Rowe, who's dealt with injury, he can't really crack it sometimes in the team. Martinelli. So my fear for them has always been the consistency of having a very young team, the consistency of a group of players that I don't think have really proven very much, either with other clubs or at senior international level or with Arsenal. And so it's a largely, for me, group of unproven players in terms of what we're talking about, which is winning major honors, winning Premier Leagues and Champions Leagues and all of that stuff. So I, I do think that this team is is going to have to prove it over the course of long stretches. They're going to have to play the big teams in the Premier League and get wins. So I am really fascinated by what happens to Arsenal, but I'm still very much in prove-it mode. It's a good win, a big win, but... I think particularly, I mean, Manchester City, again, had another great week in terms of putting up, you know, pulling off great performances. Erling Haaland has been absolutely sensational. They're the favorites. And so in order for Arsenal to be in that conversation, it's going to be a lot longer than seven, eight, nine games. Agree with you on all of this. Uh, I still think Man City and Spurs are the two best teams in the league. And 
think it's October 1st, coming back from the international window that Arsenal hosts Spurs. Another little bit of a schedule edge there for Arsenal. They're hosting the game, and we'll see how that goes. But I, I feel good about what Spurs have done so far and their ability to win in different ways and get results in different ways uh, to grind things out or like this weekend, just to score six goals and destroy Leicester. Homin Son is a guy who has had an off season so far for Spurs hat trick in what 13 minutes in this game as a sub. And if you're a Spurs fan, you're seeing this and going, Oh, wow. If he gets going, we're going to be unstoppable because Richarlison's been fantastic so far this season. Harry Kane is Harry Kane. And the rest of the team seems to be playing Conti ball and, and doing pretty well. I, I, I do. I, I'm, I actually would allow for Arsenal to be a better title contender than Spurs, even though Ooh. they just won by six goals to two, because I, I don't always trust. To, and look, Antonio Conte certainly uh, waged plenty of league campaigns that have been successful and won titles. He's an incredibly proven manager. I just think at times Spurs have left me wanting in terms of game control. I don't feel like they control games. I think they sometimes survive and then they win. And that is perhaps the Antonio Conte model and they'll continue to, to, to perform well. But I do think Arsenal can give them a real go. And I'm really fascinated by that North London derby. That being said, you, you forgot one name in terms of attacking players playing well for Spurs. And that's Dejan Kulisevsky, who's been yeah. a really good uh, signing from team. Juventus. And they have four attackers for three positions. And just as we were talking about with Arsenal, where they have struggled to have depth Tottenham has definitely struggled to have depth. When they were getting to the Champions League final, it was kind of the same group of 15 players that was going to be what got them over the line, and they just fell short. And I think what Maurizio Pochettino wanted was, hey, we need players 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 to fill out this squad so that we can go and compete. Daniel Levy declined to make transfers, and now they're sort of making up for it now. But I do think that this Spurs team, by virtue of having some depth, by virtue of being solid defensively, they're going to compete in most of the games that they play. Um, but I, I am sometimes a little bit skeptical. They got hammered in the Champions League by sporting. Well, not hammered, but uh, beaten late by sporting away from home. Uh, Antonio Conte does not have a good European record. True. And I, I do th- I, I'm, I'm sometimes skeptical of Spurs, mostly because I kind of like my teams to be really promising from an attacking point of view in order for me to re- in order for me to really believe in them winning the title. I know that's rich of me to say after they scored six goals, <laughs> but I mean game in game out, yeah. you know that they're gonna be interested in attacking and trying to beat the opponent with the ball. I know that's sort of a very uh, narrow view of me, but I, I just don't like sometimes when Spurs just suffer through games and have almost no intent to score. What's Mauricio Pochettino doing? I haven't seen him in any media anywhere. Like, I assume he got a nice payout from PSG, but like, you know, his name came up uh, when the Chelsea job came open, and he wasn't chosen, like, in you know, in favor of Graham Potter, which is an interesting call. Like, what's he doing? And like, is he just sort of chilling out? Is he like writing a book? Is he hanging out with his kids? I I, I don't get it. It feels like it'd be a very charismatic pundit. I'm surprised yeah. that like Spanish language or Spanish television or even, I mean, in, you know, Premier League studios wouldn't want to have him in even with his, uh, you know, not exactly flawless English just because he's a, he's a big character. He's someone who has shaped some really big clubs in, in the modern day. You're probably right. He probably is just sitting around counting the buyout money from PSG <laughs> and waiting for the next big job to open because you know, he's going to get phone calls. Um, and I think if, if Thomas Tuchel is any indication, perhaps not exactly flourishing at Paris Saint-Germain is not exactly a strike <laughs> against you. It's a difficult club to manage. And so I do, think that, I do think that Pochettino will probably be a real measure of success. And I'm really interested to see who's the, who's the next English club that will have an open vacancy. Well, Because right now, they all actually kind of seem to be in fairly stable places. Yeah, in terms of big clubs. I mean, like, I wanted to ask you if I gave you three names of coaches who are on hot seats. Who is on the hottest of these hot seats? Brendan Rodgers at Leicester, David Moyes at West Ham, or Max Allegri at Juventus? I actually, it should be Max Allegri because I think Juventus have been able to skate. They've been, yeah. they, they've been using Barcelona as a meat shield for three years now. Hey, look, 
There's the basket case European club. Look over there. And meanwhile, Juventus, the aftermath of the Cristiano Ronaldo era, and even during the Cristiano Ronaldo era, yeah, they, they were winning Scudettos, but the Pirlo thing was a train wreck. It just didn't work. Um, the Maurizio Sarri thing in year two, did, or was there even a year two? They won a, they won a league title, but they didn't bring him, they, they, they didn't bring him back. And Allegri hasn't exactly brought them back. You'd figure at the very least. They brought in a ton of players that have been successful in Italy. He would lead them to go win Serie A, and maybe it wouldn't be pretty, but at the very least, he knows how to win league titles with that team. They're not even close. They're terrible going forward. <laughs> and I know that they've lost a couple of key attackers, but they're so dreary to watch. And they're well off it in Serie A, a Serie A that is very competitive this year. There's no one team that's running away from it. Atalanta with a big win away from home against Roma to go top at the end of the weekend. But I I do think that Juventus are absolutely skating right now. And I think that Max Allegri should be under huge pressure. That being said, the other options you give me, I'm... I don't know what's happening with Brendan Rodgers. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, this is a very narrow example, but the Matias Almeida situation at San Jose Earthquakes. It's sort of a, no, I'm not going to quit. You're going to fire me. So we're just going to do this song and dance for many more games than we should. I feel like Lester probably wanted to get rid of him early earlier in the season, but for some reason they're hanging on. That's a club that definitely needs a change. And the longer that they, they wait, the more that relegation becomes a real possibility, which it should not be for that club. It's kind of a bizarre situation for them right now. And then Moyes. Moyes is another one where West Ham, they brought in some legit attackers. They brought in Gianluca Scamacca, who's a good striker. They brought in Lucas Paqueta, who's a, who's a really good a, a, a Brazilian attacker. They finally brought in some depth, but David Moyes just plays the same way. And I wonder if that just sort of has a shelf life and that shelf life has now expired. I mean, they spent a lot of money for those guys yeah. at West Ham. And so if they're not getting results, you would think that Moyes might be in, in some trouble there. Rodgers pulled the whole thing this weekend of like, um, I'll, I'll, I like my owners. I respect them no matter what they do, which is kind of like, oh, wow, he might get canned. Um, <laughs> and, and we'll see on that. But like going back to Juventus briefly, midweek loss in Champions League at home to Benfica. Very dreary game, as you say, for for Juventus in that one. And then losing to Monza, promoted Monza, first Monza win of the season. And admittedly in the league, first Juventus loss of the season. But still, they're not getting points. And we'll see how much that ratchets up the pressure on Max Allegri. Um, I do want to talk about Bayern Munich because Bayern Munich has gone four games in the league now without a win, is um, in a really rough stretch, lost to Augsburg, Augsburg this weekend. <laughs> and we mentioned that Union Berlin is on top, but you know Bayern just really struggling now. And then we had the, so that game was on Saturday, the Bayern lost to Augsburg, and then they had their annual visit to Oktoberfest, the Bayern team, which must have been the, the worst, grimmest, situation possible <laughs> you're dressed up for oktoberfest you're drinking these giant beers and you're angry as hell that you've gone four games in the league without a win yeah uh i i saw i think dc united recently had like a fan event where it was kind of a meet and greet and it came after that six nil defeat to the philadelphia <laughs> union uh it's, it's not quite the same thing because byron still you know has won two games from two in the champions league um but yeah i mean it's it's a draw with stuttgart a draw with uh with union berlin the draw with Mönchengladbach, and a defeat away at augsburg and it actually had forced uh oliver khan uh, the CEO of Bayern Munich to have to come out and say he's not under pressure. We still believe in him, but Nagelsmann is a, is a coach who's sort of been on a meteoric rise and it doesn't feel like he's had any impediment along the way. And now finally he's met some adversity and I will hold my hand up and say that I declared the Bundesliga title race over <laughs> after 40 minutes and it is no longer over. I'm reopening that conversation. Um, I still think they'll win it, win it comfortably, but it's been a surprise that Bayern are not exactly perfect. Even in that in that first half against Barcelona, they probably should have been three or four nil down. They were quite fortunate in that first half to not go behind. Barcelona completely controlled that first half, and then they came out and performed really well, and they have such brilliant attackers that they went out and won the game. But uh, I, I, it has not been a perfect season from Nagelsmann, and this is kind of his first real negative step, and he's going to have to sort this one out. 
I did not think that Nagelsmann would ever get in trouble due to Bundesliga results. I thought it would be because of Champions League results where they haven't been as good. But you never know what might happen. And and things aren't sealed for them in Champions League either. But, I mean, lots of pressure there as well uh, at that club. Um, you broadcast, Chris, it's crazy. It's now 10 p.m. on Sunday night Eastern time. And you broadcast three games this weekend. You did two MLS games. You did an NWSL game. So first off, Big ups to you for having the stamina to even be doing this because that's crazy, but impressive. Um, did you have a good fancy lad moment in any of these three games? <laughs> I feel like you're leading me somewhere. Uh, yeah, yes, I, I, I think I did. I saw Tom Bogert of MLSsoccer.com have a go at me on Twitter uh, for saying that uh, I, I, was, I was talking about the Philadelphia Union's attack and the way that they're always looking for th- for through balls and for bent balls. And I, I kind of made an argument that a lot of the union game plan is about geometry. <laughs> and I guess this got me dinged by Tom Boger for saying, really, you're talking about soccer and you're using you're using the word geometry. Get over yourself. Uh, so it was it was a very fancy lad moment, I, I suppose. But yes, uh I, I, I occasionally can have those on the air where maybe I'm being a little bit too artful about something that's a little bit more simple. How much would it annoy Philadelphia fans if you started pronouncing their team's name like you would Union Berlin and calling oh. them Philadelphia Union? Oh, I, I really wanted to. I, I really wanted to call them either Union Philadelphia or Philadelphia <laughs> Union. I th- actually, th- my, my, my better one for me would be, because it is actually the first name, uh, there's a USL League One team called Union Omaha. And that yes. one I've wanted to call Union Omaha. Every time I see that name for me, I say it in my head, Union Omaha. I hope that they le- that they lean into that. Maybe they have an Oktoberfest night. <laughs> I will say this: that like we mentioned this last week, I, more and more this Union Berlin story is just amazing. The fact that they're still in first place. This was a team that just got promoted a couple of seasons ago. Really rich history, which a friend of mine who's lived in Berlin filled me in on even more uh, this week. And the fact that they have a U.S. men's national team player scoring goals for them, it's just uh, a terrific story. I'm going to be in Germany this week. Unfortunately, not going to Berlin, but I will be in Cologne. Um, That's where the U.S. team is based to prepare for the game in Dusseldorf uh, later this week. So should be an exciting one. Chris, thanks as always for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.